Amen. I'm going to fix this because if I don't, I'll be mad. And I'll think about it the whole time and I'll be like rocking it back and forth. So there we go. Firm foundation. Awesome. Uh, if you didn't get one of these, we're going to take a minute. Uh, these are for you. It's a gift for you. Does anybody need one? Didn't get one? Awesome. Um, and if you're watching online or you're watching later, I don't care if it's a year from now, you want one of these, we'll get it for you. Um, this is not so much, and we're going to talk about this in a minute, it's not so much for you to write down what I say or what you hear in these sermons. This is for you. This is for your time with Jesus. And we're going we're gonna to get into it in a minute. Uh, we're going to kind of do something together with these. But I want to begin, I'm from Knoxville, Tennessee. Some of you guys know that. Um, and if you drive just 15 minutes down the road from Knoxville, Tennessee, just 15 minutes, you will find guard towers, these massive structures to a secret city. If you'd reached those towers in 1942, you would have been met with armed military personnel asking you for credentials. And if you didn't provide them, you probably would have been arrested. The activity within that city was so secret during that time that the people who worked there, many of them didn't even know what they were doing. They were just told to work at a certain thing. They were told not to talk to the people next to them, not to talk to the people in the streets. Secrecy was so important. So secret were the activities within this complex that, that they built homes, thousands of them, businesses, restaurants, post Like you were not supposed to leave if you worked in the secret city that's 15 minutes from my house. But it didn't keep people from guessing, wondering, what are we doing here? What's going on? Is it a matter of our own survival that we keep this secret? Is it a matter of our nation's survival, what we're doing here? Why were they feeling this way? Because they were in the middle of what people were describing as the war to end all wars, World War II. And according to many who were believers at that time, and maybe even those who might loosely be connected to some sort of religious upbringing, they felt like they had a legitimate antichrist roaming the earth in the name of Adolf Hitler. People were feeling it. People were saying, this could be it. We better keep things secret. It's a time of great fear, apocalyptic murmurings. So that secret city is Oak Ridge, Tennessee. It was the epicenter of the Manhattan Project. The uranium enriched in those facilities would be dropped in a bomb called Little Boy on the city of Hiroshima, killing thousands. The people who worked there did not know that until after it was dropped. Some of them were like, yeah, what? What have we been doing? Some super excited, others an ethical dilemma. What have we started? <laughs> and we could all probably sit down and have coffee and talk about the implications of the Cold War and things like that. Even today, Oak Ridge still houses the largest stockpile of enriched uranium. One of the reasons now, though, is that they're dismantling bombs. 
storing it deep below safe. But people say that people glow that work there. <laughs> there is definitely, you know, you can, you can find uh, radioactive stuff that I've heard that. But here's the thing. The world didn't end. Those guard towers are now dilapidated. You can drive right past them. You're like, hey, they're kind of stuck in the middle of the trees there. Old guard towers. This wasn't the first time that people felt, this is it. This is the moment. This is the moment that the details in this book might just be happening. We better be ready. So, no secret, probably to you, some of you even in the way that when we talked about how we were going to do this, the people are like this, they're like, really? Wow, you're brave. Do you want to keep your job? Like, that's kind of how it felt. I was like, oh, shoot. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't have said, no secret, this book is contested hotly through the centuries. From the beginning, did you know it almost didn't make it into the Bible? Because of it, when they put the canon together in the 400s, Revelation was on the chopping block because people were like, oh, I don't know, this could cause a lot of mess. And has it caused some mess? People have been trying to make sense and predict the images described in the book of Revelation for a long time, and they've all so far been wrong as far as like putting dates and times on predictions. Some early church fathers dabbled a little bit in this. Hippolytus, I don't know if I'm saying his name right, right there, but he predicted the end of the world would be in the year 500. Didn't happen. Columbus sailed to the new world because he believed God had called him to be an instrument in bringing about the imminent new heaven and earth prophesied in Revelation. Luther, Martin Luther, Reformation, thought it's near. It's probably going to be within 100 years. Books have been written. World wars have been centered around these things. In 1998, 1988, you could go into a Christian bookstore and you could find a copy of a book titled 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Could Be in 1988. Three million copies were distributed. Didn't happen. So he wrote a new book, 89 Reasons Why It's Going to Happen in 1989. <laughs> that one didn't sell so well. Other books that have had these types of covers and feeling. You could go into a Christian bookstore in the 80s and you would find a book about this book and what is going to happen. And you might see the picture of Mikhail Gorbachev on the front with the birthmark of the beast. Seriously, those kinds of things, he, he could be the one, he could be the Antichrist. If you fast forward a little bit to the 90s, same book, Saddam Hussein. Ironically, so much of it centering around America and what's going to happen here. Fast forward a little bit more, early 2000s, guess who? Osama bin Laden. It's got to be. This, is, this feels like the end of the world. We've not seen these things. People, I remember people like lining up stuff with the towers, the two towers, it's in scripture, do you see this? Even now, you'll find similar books. Whose picture? Putin, somebody, somebody in the world has got to be the Antichrist, right? What's interesting is the most popular approach to interpreting this book, the one that most people would be like, yeah, that's it. This is the way to do it, has only been around since 1820. 
Hmm. So 1,820 or so years of church history. Yeah, you guys were wrong. The way we see it the last couple hundred is this is it. This is it. We need to, to lay out the details. Documentary I just saw on Netflix about tragedy in Waco. David Koresh said, I'll come out when I finish my interpretation of the book of Revelation. What he was telling his people, though, was that he was the Messiah. And this is Armageddon. And we're going down right here. And they did. So, kind of intense to think about this. But I wrote, uh, today's is called, and you probably in your book, and your uh, Revelation, copy of Revelation, it says prologue, kind of meaning the, the intro, uh, and I've titled today The Past is Prologue. It's from Shakespeare, The Tempest. The actual quote is, what's past is prologue, but what does it mean? We can learn from where we've been. Everything that's happened beforehand is going to inform what we do now with this book, and I think we can learn. I think we can grow. I can grow. I've definitely been one of those, like, give me my secret decoder ring. And if I hold my eyes just right and put this map over the book, I can find out the code of when these things. I've been there. Absolutely. I want to grow. It may mean admitting, though, together, together. I'm saying me too, that we may have been approaching it with a little bit of fear because that is a common theme among a lot of the interpretations. It's fear. So last week, I hurt my shoulder. I wish I could tell you it was because I was chopping wood or something like that. I slept on it wrong. (laughs) (laughs) I was in so much pain. And so I went, we have a chiropractor we go to in Rochester that we really like and, and did some stuff there. And then they have a masseuse, a guy, and he's like this, like, Look, he's, the, he's this guy. Yeah. And I'm like, hey, you know. <laughs> and so he starts like working on me. And it, a lot of you, some of you guys know this, like several years ago, I broke the shoulder. I was boogie boarding with my kids and got slammed on the beach and broke the ball into several pieces. One of the most painful things in my life. And so I have, actually, Lisa says she knows I'm asleep when I do this. Why? Because when it was broken, I was not allowed to move it. And so I learned to sleep like this. And so now when I'm asleep, oh, Chad's asleep. His arm's like this. But I've also learned to favor this one a little bit. And when it comes to working out or doing things, I'll opt for this one. And so it was this really amazing moment in the office with the dude as he's like messing with my, my shoulder and my muscles and stuff. And he's like making, he's going, hmm. Oh, oh, hmm. I'm like, what? He goes, you know, your left bicep is two times smaller than your right one. I was like, you stink. Like, I was like, thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. And it, basically he said, you're going to need to work out just the left for a while. And what's, what has happened? Since I've injured my shoulder, since I've favored it, since I've fallen into a place of a little bit of like, I can't use that. No, it it, it makes me afraid. No, I'm going to use this arm. My muscle, whatever, this guy is so lame. It's gotten smaller. And quit looking at my right and left, okay, if you are. (laughs) Stop it. (laughs) I have a baggier shirt today. 
But it was good because I was right in the middle. I've been reading for several weeks now, trying to get ready. And I felt like the Lord was like, yeah, you've, you've been falling into that same kind of interpretive weakness as well, Chad, over the years. You've been afraid when people tell you, it's close, it's now. I remember being in high school, somebody saying, they saw Jesus. You probably heard this, this one. This one gets passed around. This guy was walking on the street. Somebody picked him up, a hitchhiker. He got in the car and he said, Jesus is coming back. And then all of a sudden the guy disappeared. Like that, you can find that one on the internet. It's one of those stories that makes its way. But I remember hearing that. I'm just so taken and you want to be ready and you want to live ready and you want to be excited. But I feel like the Lord has said, hey, settle. Because maybe we all should actually believe him in Matthew 24 when he says, nobody knows the hour. So when somebody says to you, no, no, I really know. I know. So then how should we read it? And we're spending a little bit longer bit of time here before we jump in just at the beginning, because I think it's important to set some kind of set the ground a little bit. We want to learn together in humility. I never get up here. Anybody that stands up here, we don't ever get up here as experts. We get up here as fellow believers and followers of Jesus who really want to know him and want to experience him. And so, man, I was, I mean, right there in the back, just singing the I Speak Jesus, I, my, I was just as loud as I could, Jesus for my family. Jesus for my family. I want to grow. And so when I approach the Lord, I want to know you. I want to experience you. So the great thing about the four to seven, seriously, four to seven different ways to interpret this book. Isn't that encouraging? Aw, no. <laughs> Four to seven is that they all can agree on certain things. And one of them, a huge one, which is what we're all about around here, is that Jesus wins. Even if you're like, no, no, I think there's a timeline thing going. And you're like, no, no, I think it's a little more symbolic. They can all agree that Jesus wins. And so we're going to find ourselves drawing from multiple places, but trying to, I want to humble myself and not just go with what I've always heard. And so I'm entering this. Is it a map? A code book? I don't think so. I'm not saying that out of my own. It's not original to me, though. I'm kind of going with the first 1,800 or so years of church interpretation and approach to this book. Are we in the end times? I would say yes with a qualifier. I think the best definition for the end times is the time between Jesus leaving the earth and him coming back. So yeah, it, we're in the end times, sure. The time in between his ascension and return is the end times. And we should live like we're in the end times. That's absolutely okay to do with some qualifications. And so can Revelation teach us how to live in the end times without us reading it as a timeline for the end times? I think so. And again, I'm learning and I'm unlearning, but I, I, there's a quote from Eugene Peterson, one of my favorites, Home with Jesus Now, but he said this, I don't read Revelation to get additional information. I don't read it to get additional information about the life of faith in Christ. I have read it all before in the law, the prophets, the gospels, and the epistles. Interesting. Everything in Revelation can be found in the previous 65 books of the Bible. How about that? I was like, okay, that's, that's cool. Another pastor said this, if it ever became illegal to have a Bible and you were allowed or somehow managed to get just one book of the Bible, 
You may ask yourself the question, which one would you take? He said, I would take Revelation every day and twice on Sunday. I would take Revelation. Why? Because everything's in there. Everything is in there. And I believe the Holy Spirit is really good at his job. John 16 says he will lead us into all truth. And so we're going to do that. So here's what I want you to do. And only if you feel called. Um, but if you look in mine, I have that page that says Revelation. I put the revelation of Jesus Christ to Chad. Not that it's just for me, but I'm making this personal. And I put the date. And if you feel so led, I want you to do that. Write your name in there somewhere. Put the date. Because like I said, this is for you. This is not so that you can be like, wow, that's such great tea. No, this is so you can encounter Jesus. You can be in his presence. And I'll tell you that when I, when I first started a few weeks ago, approaching the book a little differently with an open heart and mind and not trying to find all the codes, I read through this first part that we're going to read today, just out loud in my office. And man, if the Lord didn't just hit me, tears and just, and I've read it a hundred times, but it was as if the Lord walked into my office and said, all right, here we go. And so I want you to believe with me. And as you write this, here's what I want you to, in your own heart and mind, and if you want to write this in your own words, Lord Jesus, let this book change my life. Let this book change my life. So I'm just going to pray over this, if those of you who have felt called to do that, and maybe you'll do it later. I want you to listen to his heart, but let me just pray real simply before we read the first few verses. Lord Jesus, as I have been praying, walk into this room, more importantly, into the rooms and lives and hearts of every person here today and every person that will be listening to this. And God, we ask, let your word, your living word, transform us. Let it change us for your kingdom and for your glory. Amen. So Revelation 1, verse 1. This comes with a promise. Those who hear this read aloud and the reader as well, blessing is actually in this process. What we're going to do just right here. Let's do it. The revelation of Jesus Christ that God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, whatever he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Yes, right here. And blessed are those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep what is written in it because the time is near. The year was 92 AD. It was really hard. Persecution in the Roman Empire had started in about 65 under Nero, intensified in 67 under Vespasian. Jerusalem was destroyed in 70. Peter was crucified. Paul was beheaded. Timothy was murdered. And then Domitian, the new emperor, decided, because he was super insecure, most tyrants are, to compensate for his insecurity, he ordered all citizens and subjects of the Roman Empire to worship him as Lord 
and God. He changed the name of the Roman Empire to the Eternal Empire, and he called himself the Everlasting King. All citizens and subjects were to go to a temple that had been built in his honor. Really simple thing. Take a pinch of incense, throw it on the fire, and say, Caesar is Lord. Simple. No big. And you know what he said? Hey, you Christian people, I don't care if you believe that too, but you still need to do this. Caesar is Lord. So God looked at this group of believers, and you're gonna, we're going to learn about them, and said, they need something. They need to hear something. In a very difficult culture, he didn't tell them, form a resistance group. He didn't tell them, try to take over the government. He didn't give them a load of money. He didn't put them in places of power. Instead, he said this, you need an apocalypse. You need an apocalypse, but not that kind. Isn't that what we think, though? It is our culture's way, like, oh, it was apocalyptic. We think, you know what apocalypse means? Pull back the veil. Pull back the curtain, unveil. You need an apocalypse of Jesus. So why? Why do we need an apocalypse? Because things aren't as they seem. So here's the first thing we can all learn together. It is not revelations. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, don't get mad at somebody out there, like when you're out there and if you're talking to somebody about, hey, you know, we're going through Revelation. They're like, Revelations are like, no, <laughs> don't do that. But it's, a, it's an important place because sometimes it's seen as like this big book of just crazy things that are happening. It is the revelation of Jesus. The unveiling, the lifting, the pulling back of the curtain to see what's real when you are in it. When you are needing hope, when you're discouraged, when you're heading what you believe to be the wrong way, and you get a text message, even a call, it used to be a letter or a visit, but you get something from somebody that loves you. And then further, if it's you need good news and they actually have good news for you and they can change things for you, it's exactly what you need. And Jesus looks at this group and through John and says, here's what they need. They need a revelation of me. Reminder, these churches that got to read and hear this letter did not have Bibles. They did not have commentaries. Some of them may have heard this once. One time, just sitting in a a house church, somebody stands up and reads it, and then it gets sent on to the other church. And yet, it was encouraging to them. It gave them hope. It showed them what was real. It gave them a picture of unseen realities. We must look, not to look for a timeline, not to look for a code for unlocking the future. We must look to see Jesus himself. That's what he's saying. We must see him. Pastor Daryl Johnson wrote a great book called Discipleship on the Edge. It's one that I've read, uh, am reading of several. He says this, Revelation isn't a crystal ball revealing esoteric secrets that enable somebody to escape the harsh realities of earth. 
of life on earth, but it's a down-to-earth manual on how to be a disciple of Jesus when we are facing the harsh realities of life on earth. It's how to do this. It's how to thrive in Babylon. We're going to learn about that. It's how to thrive in what many of us would consider pretty hard. It's pretty difficult in this life. How to do life with Jesus and the way Jesus does. Not just about Jesus, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Most scholars would say, and it's from him. It's about him and it's from him. He is actually walking in and delivering it himself. And he says this, what must soon take place? Now, this is the trip right here. This is why everybody was like, (gasps) timelines, codes, charts. So it's important to learn some of the things about reading scripture. And I'll tell you, I'm learning just even the last few years. I read and dig in all the time because I have not arrived and I want to grow. And so when it says it must take place, what is that, what that's meaning and kind of what it's leaning towards is that it's because it's a part of God's sovereign will and plan. Therefore, it must take place. It will take place because God is doing it. That's, that's what it is. It's, that's what must take place. But soon, not to mean it's happening. It's all happening soon. But in the way scripture speaks, that the fulfillment of these things has begun in the life death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, you can imagine with that tombstone rolling, there is a kingdom ball that just started rolling and it will not be stopped until it's fulfilled. That's why it's soon. That's why it's soon. And he says what John saw, really, really important for us. What John saw, because a lot of what we're going to see is going to be kind of like a painting. If you ever walked into a museum and looked at a masterpiece or something, I love going to the Minnesota Museum of Art, uh, the Marine Museum of Art here in town. And if you haven't been there before, a lot of times they've got like crazy famous people in there. Van Gogh, Picasso, Monet, like a lot of stuff. And so when you walk around and you're looking at a painting, is your first thought when somebody says, hey, what do you think? Is your first thought to go, it's true. That painting is true. People will be like, okay. (laughs) No, you, you notice what? Light and color and you're drawn into a story. What John saw, we're gonna get images. We're gonna get pictures. Not that it doesn't convey truth, but a lot of times it's not trying to convey a literal truth with what the image is saying, whether it's a horse or a beast or a dragon. You get what I'm saying? We're supposed to look almost as if it's a painting. It does represent eternal truths, but we have to start to learn to do what John is doing, just to see and to look. Blessed are those who hear it. Bible, when it says hear, and hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, the Bible has like a very layered meaning of the word hear because it also means obey. Now, John helps you out, and he says, hear and keep. But hear, just hear, in the Bible means you are heeding it. You are understanding, and you are obeying. So blessed, not just because you sat here and it's like, yeah, great, heard it. No, I heard it. I heard it, and I responded. And this is, if, if you want a key, like, so if we're going to have any kind of code like decoder. Here's the only one you need. 
And this is not original to me, but I'm taking this from somebody else, a guy named Michael Gorman, reading Revelation responsibly. He says this, if you want a key, it's in verse 3. Blessed are those who hear and keep. Now, how is that a key for the rest of Revelation? Because it reminds us that this book is not a depiction of events to come, but it's a call to obedience. It's not to inform us, it's to transform us. Not so that we can know what to do when it all hits the fan, but it's so that we can be changed and transformed right now. Right now. This is, this is the call for us. And so as we go forward, we're going to get into some really awesome and fun stuff. We have to go back like, wait a minute, what's that key again? Those who hear and obey. How can I obey when I'm hearing something about a beast or a dragon or the horror of Babylon? Like, how can I obey? What does this mean? It's, it's a way for us. And this is like we're saying, we're at the beginning, we're going to grow, but let it be a key. Put it as a reminder, if you want to circle it in your journal to say, put a little key. I, wrote, I put a key in my notes, an actual like emoji key. It's like, this is a key. I want to use this. Discipleship. There is no more book, there's no book in the Bible more focused on discipleship, this is another scholar saying this, than Revelation, of you becoming like him, of you walking with him, of you being faithful, of you loving Jesus, of you staying true to the end, than the book of Revelation. That's the key. Finally, he says the time is near. One verse will help you understand what the Bible means when it says it's near. Remember what Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's close. It's near. So yes, as soon as Jesus landed on the earth, it was near. We're in the end times as soon as he headed. So next three, verse, next three verses, verse four, John, to the seven churches in Asia, grace and peace to you from the one who is, who was, and who is to come. And from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has set us free from our sins by his blood, made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So John, yes, that John, the one who was with him, he is on an island called Patmos. Let's look at a map here. So Italy, that's enough. It's modern day Turkey is what this is now, but Patmos, because I can, right there. Did you see that athletic? Rah! My, my, my biceps aren't the same size, but I can jump a half a foot. <laughs> hey, look at that. Way to go, Ken. Nice job. Got a little cursor there. Pointer. Patmos, little island. He's there, prison. He's going he's gonna to finish his life there. It's kind of a nothing. But it's 60 miles from these towns, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. We're going to read about those, but John to the seven churches. Right there. This is not some pie in the sky, mythological, there were churches. These were real places. And John knows they're struggling. He knows they've been asked to put the pinch of incense on the fire and say Caesar is Lord. And some of them have done it. They're still saying Jesus is Lord, but they've also kind of mixed. There's this syncretism happening. And they've done a little of both, and they're confused, and their witness is not so strong, and they don't know what's wrong. And so 
God gives him this revelation to John to seven real churches. But numbers in the Bible are also multi-layered. And so seven, the Holy Spirit and John, made it seven because seven is the number of perfection. It's the number of fulfillment. And so thus, it is to the seven churches and it is to Pleasant Valley Church. It is to the church universal. This message is one that speaks to the entire body of Christ in every age. It's timeless. So just for a minute, think about the ramifications of this. If it was addressed to the first century church, they didn't have Bibles, they didn't have commentaries. Okay, nobody was doing word studies. Nobody's sitting down going, the Greek doesn't say that. All right, they were just listening. They're just listening. If they listened to this, and what I want to tell you is they didn't listen to it and go, what? This guy was smoking something when he wrote this. I don't know what he's talking about. No, they had a box for apocalyptic literature. And let's just put parentheses around that to say they knew how to look at a painting. They knew how to look at a painting. And they listened to the words of this book, which are going to get a whole lot more complicated. They're not complicated yet. They're going to get complicated. They listened to it and they said, oh, that brings me so much encouragement. I am ready to be faithful to Jesus. They didn't say, you know what? I think, I think this is for people in the future. I, I think it's for people thousands of years from now, and they're going to know how to do that. that we, we don't know. We don't even read. No, it was applicable to them, which means universally it, the messages and the truth that's there can be applicable to us. Now, Scripture also does this thing. Sometimes there's a local fulfillment of prophecy that also is a future fulfillment. An example, the virgin shall be with child and she shall call his name Emmanuel. There actually was a real young girl. That word is not virgin in Hebrew, it's young girl. And there actually was a girl in that time period who got pregnant. And yes, she was a virgin when she got pregnant. But it had a local fulfillment and it has a bigger fulfillment in Jesus. You see that a lot in the Psalms as well when it's talking about David, but it's also talking about the greater David. And so, yes, it applies to the seven churches, but yes, it applies to the universal church. So what message do we need to hear? What message is important? So grace and peace, I just learned this. Grace, Greek greeting. Peace, Hebrew greeting. Jewish. Which people that were like trying to separate and be like, we don't like those Greeks. We just want it to be Jewish. And the Greeks were like, oh, those Jews. We don't, like, we don't want to do worship with them. Anytime Paul wrote this, anytime John writes this, grace and peace, it's like, hey, reminder, mm -mm. grace and peace, baby. Ground is level at the cross. Grace and peace. The God who is, who was, and is to come. John's grammar, not because I am a Greek scholar, I am not. I had one Greek class at Wheaton College, biblical Koine Greek. I made it through. <laughs> there were moments I was talking to my friend, Mike Jones. Hey, did you read this? So that, that's, that was my, sorry to those of you in education. I, I was, oh, I was not. I am now, but I was not your favorite student. I was that guy who knew how to get by with a B. But I've read other scholars who are way smarter than me. And John's grammar 
is kind of bad. He's, he's kind of a fisherman writing. You look at Luke, Acts, what we just came through, and it's like, scholars talk about this, and all of us would be like, okay. But we, it's like he's like, Jesus, and, and John's like, hey, you know, there was Jesus, and it, it feels clunky. And he actually does something here with the God who is, who was, and who is to come, and it's a major grammatical mistake. So for those of us who get down to the literal uh, inerrancy and we're all about the grammar and stuff too, there are grammatical mistakes in what he does, but he does it on purpose. In the Old Testament, when Moses went up to the burning bush and asked, who should I say is sending me? God says, I am that I am. And the way they would spell it, Without the vowels, just the consonants, it was kind of a weird structure in Hebrew. It's only a thing they do in Hebrew. And so John is writing in Greek, and you know what he does? He's like, I'm going to do it too. Who is and was and is to come? And it's, it's a really odd construction, but what is he saying? What is Jesus saying? Because the Holy Spirit's helping him write this. Here's what he's saying. He was the God in the bush. The God who led them out of Egypt, split the sea. The God in the pillar of fire and cloud. It's Jesus it's him. He's here. He's the one. That's what they needed to hear right now in this moment of, you should also put the pinch of incense on. They needed to hear about a God who is and was and is to come. Seven spirits is the Holy Spirit. Most scholars agree on that. And Jesus is our faithful witness. When we are wanting to give in and not be a witness for Jesus, when we shy away, when he stood before Satan, had the opportunity to give up, he didn't. To give in, he didn't. He stood before Pilate. He had a little bit of a window there where Pilate was like, hey, I don't really find anything wrong with you. He didn't. He stayed faithful as a witness. Therefore, we can be faithful. Churches in Asia, you can be faithful. Jesus is the faithful witness. He's also the firstborn from the dead. What is that a code for? He rose from the dead. He kicked death in the teeth. We're going to find out later he's got the keys to death and hell. It's a reminder. It's a comfort. They would have heard it and they would have been like, oh, yeah, that's right. And he's the ruler of all, every king, including Domitian, including the guy who is telling you to offer worship to him. But what sets Jesus apart from all others, from every pursuit, and this is the part that just hit me in the face so hard this week, is what it says in the next part, to him who loves us. The God who loves you is speaking to you. The God who loves you, the one who is this powerful ruler and of all the kings and the one who was in the Old Testament, he loves you. I love the thought of, let's do this next one here. Yeah. Nope, one more. There we go. I love this image of John walking and wanting to be faithful and thinking about him. The end of his life, he's praying, he's worshiping, and he hears these words. John, I love you. I love them. Tell them. Tell them I love them. Tell them. And we should be, we need to be stunned every time we read that truth. Yes, he's powerful. Yes, he created everything and he loves you. You, individually. 
God really loves us. His love drives the course of history, and his love is exemplified in his life and death for us. What does it say? He has set us free by his blood. Freedom is found in the fact that God laid down his life for you. You can stand fast in persecution and difficulty because you're safe. You're free in him, provided you have given your life to him. And he has made, past tense, it's done. He has made us a kingdom and priests. He doesn't just say, you're cleaned up. Now don't get dirty again. And you better be glad I didn't damn you to hell. That's not his purpose. His purpose is partnership. It's family. It's a kingdom. And he's like, and I want you to reign with me. We're doing this thing together. He's made us a kingdom, priests together, to him be glory and dominion forever. Last two verses. John tell him this. Look, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord, the one who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. You don't need a decoder ring to understand these images, do you? It's pretty clear. And while there may be argument about how it's going to happen and when it's going to happen, and as that relates to a millennial kingdom and things like that, here's the truth. Jesus is coming and I have to look. Anybody get to see the Aurora Borealis, Northern Lights, a couple weeks ago? Anybody go to somewhere? All right. Yeah, all I, heard, all I saw was pictures on Facebook, and people were, my kids were showing me pictures of people who made it out to some dark place in Winona. And then the next night, they were like, it's going to be here too. And then so all these people went, and it was cloudy. <laughs> and nobody could see. But the Northern Lights have been making, and I think it was this past week too, there was just some unique times for people to see to see something that's a reality. But isn't it amazing? Something like that, where people are like, ooh, I've got to, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop everything and I, want, I have to go look. Imagine that times 10,000. The desire and it being visible to wherever you are, even if you've already died and need a little help getting back into position to see it. That is the picture that we have here of Jesus returning and this, I have to look. But what else? And this is a great thing because it's, it's good to be excited about this. Um, I have some learning some things about, like I said, the last 200 years of interpreting Revelation. And one of them is, is definitely the Left Behind series or the late great planet Earth, if you were around for that. Um, some issues. But I picked up the last book in the library, The Glorious Appearing, and I opened to the last chapter. And there are people and they are in Minnesota and Michigan in one moment. And then in another moment, they're standing in Jerusalem. And they're like, how did I get here? And then they hear a voice and it's Jesus saying this way. I was like, interesting. But I got to tell you, it, it makes you excited. Even if like some of the things in those books, I, I think are, there's some issues theologically, some big ones actually. But the idea of Jesus returning and us getting to see him fires me up. I used to stand in the yard with my kids when they were tiny and I could hold them. And I would grab them and I would point up to the sky. And I would say, guess what? We're either going to be here on the earth together. And as a family, we're all going to be like, yeah, let's go. Or... We're going to have passed 
and we'll just come with him. Every eye will see. It's, it's exciting. It's important to get excited about this, but there's something else. There's something else in these last few verses, and it, it talks about every eye, even those who pierced him. Now remember, it's important to use our key. Verse 3, blessed are those who hear and keep. What is this implying here about Jesus' return? You should be ready. You should be ready because when we hear about if people are going to mourn, why would they mourn? Even those who have pierced him, why would they weep? Could it possibly be that they will say, oh my goodness, it was true? It was true? All that stuff I heard in church, maybe poorly, <laughs> maybe it wasn't even that good, but all that stuff is true? He's really the king of every king in all time? And every nation was made by him and every person is loved by him? It was all true? Yes, that will cause tremendous grief. Tremendous grief to not have believed, to not have responded. So it's right there. You don't need any kind of special interpretative, interpretive gifts to understand what it's saying. He's coming and you will, you will be captivated whether you know him and love him or not. But I don't want to be, just say, it, I don't want to be one of those people who says, it's true and I didn't listen. I didn't listen. I didn't surrender my life to him. Use your key. One, chapter one, verse three. Those who hear and keep, I must surrender. I must listen to Jesus. Because for some, it's going to be tears of joy. It's going to be tears of joy. I think we will probably more, and we're going to get into a lot of this as we do the book, but I think we will have tremendous grief over those who don't. I don't think we'll be in this place of being like, ah, I told you, you're getting what you, I think we will be so heartbroken because some of them we will know. Some of them may be family, friends. We'll be broken, which means we should be broken now, not mad now. So things are a lot of keys. What is the key to understanding those who hear and obey? And he finishes with a reiteration of, I am the Alpha and the Omega. That is the first and last letter of the Greek alphabet. He could say, I am the A to Z. I'm the beginning, I'm the end. Not, I did something at the beginning and then I just let you go and live and then, oh yeah, I'm going to come back. I am the beginning and everything leads to me. I have been there. For God, everything is eternal now, past, present, future. He is not like, I wonder what's going to happen. He's already there. He knows the ending. I am the beginning and the end. He is to be our beginning and end. So as we end today, here's a question. A couple of them, actually. Do you see? 
Do you hear? Are you listening? Do you know what to do next? Let's pray. Worship team, come on up. Lord, uh, thank you just for, uh, at least I think, hopefully it not being a train wreck here. <laughs> and uh, Lord, it's, it's a fascinating book. Lord, I am coming to love it. Something that I, I've actually, some of the statistics that are out there, Lord, is that churches actually don't touch it. Most don't. And so, Lord, I'm excited. It's your word. And I believe, Lord Jesus, that you're going to be moving in our hearts and minds. And God, we, we want to do right by you. We want to hear your voice. We want to listen. We want to respond. But Lord, I love that your answer to difficult times, to the opportunity to mix um, following you with following the ways of the world, your answer was, hey, I want to give you a picture of me. I want you to see me. And Lord, we're going to see even more of you next week in the next few verses. But just pray, Lord, as, as you move through this room and in hearts, uh, God, as we've maybe made um, slight moves towards you, Lord, in saying, God, I, I want you to do something in me, I think, I think. I'm writing my name here timidly in the date. But Lord, would you uh, use just, even as we sing together, um, God, would you sneak in the back door of our hearts, Lord, transform us, give us understanding, Jesus. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. If you feel so led, let's stand together and sing.